Good morning. Please open your scriptures to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. From the very beginning, back in Genesis 1 and 2, God has always had a heart for the nations. All nations, all people, all tribes, every language. And my question this morning is, in light of what is going on in the world, how should believers, those of us who believe in a sovereign and good God, we believe both, we don't put a disparity between those two truths, how should we respond to the global conflict happening right now? There are a lot of negative options, fear, anxiety, paralysis, Depression, hopelessness, and certainly even believers have pulled the levers on some of those. Evil is not an indication that God is absent. It's an indication that God's redemptive plan is unfolding, and that requires faith and perseverance in a belief that God is both sovereign and good. The psalmist tells us, the very psalm that Nate already read for us this morning in part, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God is the sovereign Lord of history who causes kingdoms to rise and fall according to His plan. Now, as we move through this sermon... I'm going to be giving points of application. I'm going to highlight several Christian responses. I will not review those in the end. I'll put those in our email tomorrow morning. But that's the application. That's the so what. When we gather together for an hour, for an hour and 20 minutes, everybody really is asking the question, so what? What does this time have to do with my life? Obviously, first of all, it's the glory of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, as we sing to Him, as we pray to Him, as we ascribe worth to Him, as we give to Him. But then what about the sermon? That's the so what of the sermon. Let me ask you a question. What if the peace that we enjoyed over the past week, the past month, the past decade, basically the peace I have enjoyed ever since December 1st, 1968, What if that were suddenly removed? What if instability and war actually came across our borders and my three sons and son-in-law had to take up arms and possibly my daughters as it was for the Ukrainians last month? What if that all changed? What if all of a sudden we become pawns in this geopolitical chess game And it's our families that are displaced, and it's our homes that are lost. See, a lot of times, with with such a long enjoyment of peace, we don't tend to think like that. And I'm not saying these things to spawn fear in our heart. I'm actually trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to move us into a time when persecution gets more intense and troubles get more difficult Right? They become closer together and they, and they grow in their intensity. 
How do believers respond when that happens? Because anybody can respond well during the times of peace. It's a real question. As I was working on this sermon last week, it struck me that I was sitting in my heated den, sipping a hot cup of coffee, having just finished a plate of scrambled eggs, four to be exact, lightly salted, heavily peppered. And I'm watching the snow fall down and my dog is next to me. G2 is my study buddy, J-I-T-U in Swahili. It means beast. He's this big, white and fluffy. The eggs that I had eaten, I took from a refrigerator that is automatically cooled, filled with other foods next to a next to a pantry stuffed with food from King Super and Safeway and Costco and Sam's. Warehouses with a selection of food that even the pharaohs would have coveted. I knew where my six children were, where my grandchild was, where my son-in-law, my parents, my two sisters were, and my extended family. And I could reach any of them with a simple text or phone call. I realized I was rich. And you're rich. And I don't feel guilty for that. That's the first response. What I did then on the sofa in the den was I thanked God for the peace of that moment and of that morning. And I did the same thing on Friday and Saturday and this morning. That's the first response. Thankfulness. I mean, what in the world is happening I know this, I can give God thanks today. I feel like King David who said this in Psalm 16, verse 6, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And when we quote that, we need to remember, though, that David knew what battle was. He faced a giant warrior. He waged war, and his own house was disrupted by violence. So there are times when we pray and just thank God for the way the lines have fallen to us. It's what Paul said. He has learned to be content whether he has a lot or whether he has very little. I also prayed for those suffering in Ukraine and in Russia. Do you know that a lot of moms and dads have lost sons in this war? You may not like the president of Russia. And you may not like, just like I do not like, the war of going over the borders into a sovereign nation. But we still have to understand, if we are going to reflect a God who has a heart for the nations, there are many Russians grieving today as well for the loss of a child. Number two, intercession. We suffer with those who suffer as though we are suffering with them. One of the dangers of a Pax Americana, that is a term that is taken from a term that many of you who studied history understand when it was attached to another world power, a Pax Romana, Latin for Roman peace. It was basically a 200-year period of imperial prosperity under this empire of Rome. That Pax Romana faded interesting how the news articles are talking about a Pax Americana of imperialism starting to fade as well. Others suggesting that World War III has already begun. Perhaps they're right. 
Another article suggested that we are living in a post-American world, that the world is looking to America less and less, that our Pax Americana is fading. And perhaps that's true as well. Last week, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz called this moment a turning point, and the UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss said it was a paradigm shift, and she said this, quote, the age of complacency is over. Do you know it's a rare thing to live through a month of such huge historical consequence and understand in real time that that's actually what's happening? So how do believers respond? How do we respond to just the heaviness of those comments made in this situation? I want to remind us this morning of history. Because history tells a much clearer story than the future. We can look back, unless it's been rewritten to hide truth, we can look back and take certain things out of history for our comfort and for hope. Matter of fact, several times, many times in the Scripture, God calls us to remember His ways, to remember His works. That's the third response. Remembrance. We can be thankful We should intercede for those who suffer. And we need to remember. Isaiah 46 verse 9 says this. Remember the former things of old. For I am God. And there is no other. I am God. And there is none like me. Ecclesiastes 1.9 reminds us. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Paul reminds the Roman believers, by the way, that's going to be the third sort of world power we consider this morning. He reminds believers in Rome of this truth. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have, do you know the next word? Hope. Do you know discouragement and depression spawn from hopelessness? What believers need is hope. So I want us to remember to consider the former days. History preserved in Scripture because when we read Scripture, we are actually reading God's account of history because, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's something from His being. It is His breath. He breathes Scripture out. Peter says this in 2 Peter 1.16 and 20 that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And when we read God's Word, we are reminded of His character and His ways. And we can trust His ways because He has proven that His character is faithful. What nation comes to mind when you think of the book of Exodus? What nation? Egypt. Egypt is really the first powerful nation that we confront in Scripture. The first, if you would, superpower of the world. It surprises some that Egypt was already an established nation by Genesis 12. That's only 12 chapters into the full account of your Scriptures when Abraham and Sarai at the time escaped a famine and went down to Egypt and it was already a bustling city. The very last verse of Genesis says this, So Joseph died, 
being 110 years old, they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That sets up the entire book of Exodus. A book essentially about experiencing God. Not just about law or the instructions of the tabernacle, but about knowing and experiencing God in real time. So when we go back in time to this sort of first world power, we see Pharaoh. We see injustice. We see slavery. We see massive structures built by human hands. Look at Exodus 1 verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. What I love about Scripture is that since it's breathed out by God, you get to know things that you wouldn't have known otherwise. Or you get to know things that even those living out their life during that time wouldn't have had knowledge of. You actually get the thoughts of world leaders, the fear of a world leader. There are too many. Our country is in danger. And Pharaoh did deal shrewdly with them. Look at verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. He clearly states this in Exodus 5, verse 2. I do not know the Lord. Pharaoh conquered, enslaved, mistreated, and caused suffering. Look at, look at Exodus 1, verse 11, and I'm going to read a part of 13 to 14. It says this, He set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Okay, then skip down to where it says, They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. Look at verse 15. Because the evil gets worse, this 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 process is going to degenerate. Then the king of Egypt, okay, you have the leader of a world power. He said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. If you're about to have a daughter and you're looking for two names or a name, there you go. It would be unique. The king says this, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, if it is a son, okay, I've skipped, you shall what? You shall kill him. Is that disturbing? Is that horrific? Yes. Keep reading. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. I think that's more horrific and more disturbing. And you don't need me to translate why the king of Egypt would want Hebrew daughters alive. Both life and death in this instance are laced with evil intentions for both sons and daughters. But the midwives feared God and they didn't kill the sons. So all of a sudden you get a glimpse of light in darkness when you would have never known that was happening. Exodus one twenty two. look at that verse. Because they didn't, Obey the king and they obeyed God instead. And God, by the way, blessed them for their obedience against the king. Verse 22 says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Well, where is the hope in that? You have a baby that's preserved. 
that rises up then to be the deliverer of those people. And here's what's happening, folks, that most people that were being enslaved and mistreated didn't see. A shepherd is going to confront the king of Egypt. And God is going to have his way with that nation for the light of the world to the nations. In Exodus 3, 7, it says, I know their sufferings. Back in Exodus 2.23, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And that's a great reminder because justice delayed is not justice escaped. Hebrews 9.27 says this, It is appointed unto every person to die, and after that, what? The judgment. That king died. He will stand and give a precise account to God for his actions. Look at Exodus 15. Exodus 15, verse 1. By the way, the irony of this whole thing is that the Pharaoh was trying to get his people to throw male infants into the bottom of the Nile River. And guess who ends up there? His mighty battle-hardened warriors are at the bottom of the sea, not the infants. Exodus 15, 1-3, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. By the way, you sang a version of that this morning. We sang that together. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. The superpower of the world, the leader of that superpower is defeated by a shepherd leader who didn't even want to lead in the first place. Remember that? He says, God, show me a sign. God showed him amazing signs. And then he says, well, here are my excuses anyway. He didn't want to go anyway, even though he saw the signs. He never wanted to go in the first place. He never wanted to lead. And God uses that man to confront mighty Pharaoh. Other than Jesus, the only other man in Scripture who was called meek is Moses. It's fascinating to see what God is using. And by the way, folks, what God is using today, you probably will not read on CNN or Fox or Sky News or BBC, but God is certainly at work in the nation of Russia, in the nation of Ukraine, in Belarus, in all those surrounding countries. God does not forget. Matter of fact, He said, I've heard my people's cry. I have remembered their sufferings. He hears, He sees, He remembers. He delivers the exodus, the Passover, and He judges. You know, Christianity is not simply a set of doctrines and creeds. Throughout history, theologians, even pastors, want to reduce our Christianity to something like black words on white paper. Christianity is a relationship with God, through Jesus Christ, something to be experienced with its reverence and its love and its joys. It shouldn't be bookish or mechanical or intellectual or a collection of cliche phrases about the person of Jesus and the church. You can't detach Christianity from real life experiences. That's what Exodus is about, experiencing God. 
Slavery in Egypt was real, but so was a bush that burned and was not consumed. Harshness of life was real, but so were the signs and the wonders. Death was real, but so was life preserved because they had smeared the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. Calvary, Calvary and chariots were real, closing in on them, but so were the walls of water on either side while they passed through on dry ground. That's what experiencing God looks like. Romans 15.4 because, because Exodus is not really about a North, a North African superpower, but it says whatever was written in former days, right, experiencing God's intervention and deliverance and redemption, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So, Highlands, be still and know that He is God. He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel, we confront another world power, and it's Babylon. Matter of fact, the book of Daniel begins with a disaster that has destroyed the Jewish kingdom. It was the invasion of a sovereign nation by a world power. Look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Besieged it. Okay, what does that involve? Contaminating or cutting off a water supply. Preventing any food from going inside. Starving people into submission. See, there really is nothing new under the sun. Look at verse 2, and I want you to... I want you to Pick up on a certain phrase of God's sovereignty. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, deposed of its king, and then it gets worse, takes some of the best of the youths and deports them back to Babylon. These are displaced youths. Among the youth taken were Daniel and three others. Of course, from, if, if, if you've ever gone to Sunday school, you know their names. And, and who are they? Daniel? Okay, my, my, I just proved my point. You quoted not their names that attached them to Yahweh. You quoted their names that identified them with Babylon. Idolatrous people. <laughs> no, it, 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 it's a fair point. Look at Daniel 1 verse 7. Because not only are these displaced youths, but their names, the names that they were given that attached them to allegiance to their nation and to Yahweh are changed. So the L-E-L and the I-A-H parts of their names are changed. Look at Daniel 1 verse 7. The chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Okay, I'm going to say these differently. Donnie L, he called Belt Shazar, Hanan, Ayah, that's dropped, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azar, Ayah, he called Abednego. All of a sudden, their identity and their names to Yahweh, their personal God, are erased. By the way, this should help temper our attitudes towards whether or not God can protect our children in a godless, secular culture, including education. 
It does not mean we don't make the wisest decisions possible, but it should soften our rhetoric not to make education the end all. And it's not by accident that the world powers in the book of Daniel are presented as beasts. Babylon is presented as a lion. Medo-Persia presented as a bear. Greece presented as a leopard. And the Roman Empire is presented as a hideous beast. So hideous, there is nothing that was creeping the earth at that time that it could be compared to. And by the way, we have witnessed some of that beastly character from world powers over the past several weeks. These four U's are going to show you that displaced people are part of God's sovereign will to bring light into a dark nation. That's part of the ways of God. You know, at first, Nebuchadnezzar's success against Jerusalem left even the godliest person wondering whether Yahweh, the covenant Lord of Israel, had suffered defeat. But do you know it was not God's weakness? Because we've already read the Lord gave Jehoiakim the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. So what is happening? Babylon, okay, who, whose king is Nebuchadnezzar, becomes a tool in the hands of God to bring necessary discipline to his own people for the furtherance of not only his glory, but of his people's good. Again and again, we see the Lord revealed as the sovereign determiner of history. Here's the fourth response. Trust in God as the sovereign determiner of history. Amidst Babylon's destruction and displacement, there was both an opportunity and a challenge. The opportunity was to make good lives for themselves in a new place. I really want you to look at this. Turn back. Hold your place in Daniel. Turn back to Jeremiah. Turn, turn back to Jeremiah 29. As Daniel and his three companions are displaced, and as much of Israel and Judah are then also displaced, I want you to see what God tells these people who are living in a different country. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Of course, Jeremiah was, was a prophet during this time of captivity that we're talking about. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles. Here it is again. Look at this phrase. Whom I have sent into exile. From Jerusalem to Babylon. Now notice what he tells them. Because they're going to be there a while. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Notice what he says next. But seek the welfare of the city. What? Seek the good of our enemies? Seek the good of the Babylonians? Seek the welfare of the city where I have, where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. There's that intercession component again. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What a tremendous verse, even as it pertains to missions. Seek the welfare of those people. If you end up in Iran, if you end up in North Korea, you seek the welfare of its people. For in seeking their welfare, you will find your welfare. 
Response number five, shine as lights in a dark world wherever you may end up. The challenge Daniel and his companions faced was assimilation to become like the Babylonians or to worship what the Babylonians worshipped. And they had to resist that. Syncretism is a real threat in missions because all of a sudden you come away from a message of exclusivity in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one goes to the Father except through Him to saying, oh, well, the Babylonians may have their own path up this mountain. And oh, maybe the Egyptians, maybe they got something right as well. And now all of a sudden you have a assimilated into the world's religions and you have diminished the importance and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. That's the challenge. Read the book of Daniel. They never assimilated. Number five, our fifth response, shine as lights in a dark world. For Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And by the way, Side note, God may also be working in the hearts of kings right now. This minute, 10.54, our time. In Daniel 4.34, turn, turn, back, turn to Daniel 4, God, strucks, God strikes Nebuchadnezzar with what is called boanthropy. It's a real disorder where a person thinks they're a bovine and they start eating grass. Okay, okay, cow. Look at what the king of Babylon, the king of the world superpower of the day says after he gets boanthropy. At the end of the days, okay, after he was driven among men, ate grass like an ox, his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. After that, the king says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are are accounted as nothing And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Do you believe that? If so, then this is similar to response number two, response number six, intercession. But not just for those suffering, intercession for leaders. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. Highlands, pray for President Biden more than you criticize him. At this moment, it doesn't matter to me what your political disposition is. Because if you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what you should first and foremost be doing is praying for your president. Pray for President Zelensky. Pray for President Putin. Pray for President Xi Jinping. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 44. 
I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. See, Daniel is not really about Babylon. It's not even about Nebuchadnezzar. It's about a displaced youth bringing the light of God's truth to a dark kingdom. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that we through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures might have hope. Turn with me to Psalm 2 and we'll close with this. And we're going we're to cover Rome quickly. Psalm 2 begins with an incredible question in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why do they do that? There are a lot of reasons why nations rage and peoples plot, but the ultimate reason is rebellion. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Ultimately, they're raging and plotting because they want to break away from what they perceive is slavery to God's rulership. In Daniel 7, 7, he sees a terrifying image, a hideous beast that we come to find out is Rome. Why is that beast described as more hideous than any other? Well, Psalm 2 provides a theological perspective for interpreting those events. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. In Acts 4, the young church is suffering persecution. They're proclaiming the word. They're witnessing. By the way, that is a successful church in God's eyes. A church that proclaims the word and is sharing that word with others. That's successful ministry in God's eyes. In Acts 4, the young church is suffering persecution. Look at verse 24 of Acts 4. In this persecution, Peter was arrested. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. By the way, a great truth amidst difficulty. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. By the way, they turned their attention to the scriptures that they had and notice what they quote in their prayer. Hint, it's Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Verse 26, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were, past tense, gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, in the next two verses, they provide the fulfillment of Psalm 2 under Rome, the superpower of the world, the hideous beast. Look at verse 27. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, by the way, he's a, he's a Roman client of Judah, and Pontius Pilate, he's a Roman prefect, or we would say governor of Rome, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Sovereign Lord, these things had to happen this is what happened in fulfillment of Psalm 2. Yes, you're completely in control, but it's still happening under this hideous beast called Rome. 
Our seventh response is this. Trust in God's ways because God's character has proven trustworthy. It's fascinating to me that God chose that exact time, that kingdom, that timing to send His Son into. Galatians 4, 4 says this. In the fullness of time, at the exact right time, under this specific kingdom, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those. That echoes Exodus. To redeem those who are under the law. Well, the Gentiles and the Jews, the Romans and the Jews, rejected, arrested, mocked, tortured, bruised, beat, and crucified God's Son. They raged against Him. They plotted against Him. But I want to call back to your minds a phrase in Psalm 2. It says that they did this, two words, in vain. Matter of fact, what they did fell completely in accordance with the plan of God. They plotted in vain. Psalm 2 is quoted seven times in the New Testament. The identity, let's use these terms out of Psalm 2, of the anointed king, son, and begotten is never left open to debate. It's always clearly Jesus Christ. Let me read to you one of the seven instances. Acts 13, 32-33. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers... This He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Jesus was destined to rule all nations. Revelations 12.5 She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to His throne. In that verse, you're simply given the birth an ascension of Jesus where He is waiting for something. The Anointed One, the King. I mean, put yourself in the position of the nations. When Psalm 2 says, they raged and plotted in vain, what is the worst? I mean, I'm asking you, honestly. What is the worst you could possibly do to your enemy? Embarrass him is not the worst. Shame her on social media is not the worst. What's the worst you could do? You don't want to say that. Kill them. Do you know what they did to Jesus? Their enemy that they raged against and plotted, they killed him. What happens when your enemy rises from the dead? Because that's exactly what happened. Fast forward now when the king returns. You can close your scriptures. Let me read Revelation 11, three verses out of that chapter. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom, we've talked about three kingdoms this morning. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ anointed and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you. Remember, that's one of our appropriate responses to global conflict. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Well, why are they giving thanks? For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, Psalm 2. But your wrath came. And the time, the time for three things is now right. Listen to what John says in Revelation. The time for the dead to be judged. 
and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great. And third, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That's the culmination of world history where the king of kings returns and he sets everything right. This writer, according to Revelation 19, is Jesus Christ, the anointed king, son, and begotten one. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. So it's not really about Rome, is it? It is about the meek Jesus Christ standing next to Pilate. And Pilate says, so you're a king? Pilate knows now. Jesus says, that's the reason I came into the world for, the, for truth. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Just before our music team comes forward, I want to share with you what a Croatian-born Yale theologian said. Miroslav Volf once thought the wrath, anger, and judgment of God were beneath him. That is, until he lived through the ethnic, ethnic strife and horror of the Yugoslavian wars. This happened in my, our, most of our lifetime. He came to realize that his view of God had been too soft. He says this, quote, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. He continues to write or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Revelation 19, 15-16 He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm going to invite our music team forward to sing, to lead us in worship, King of Kings.
While they're coming forward, the final response we should have is one of witness. The world needs to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. Our neighbors to the nations. Somebody asked me this morning, do the world events change our plans of leaving for that area of the world, Lord willing, later this year? And it doesn't. Where we are going to be placed, there are thousands of Russians actually coming over the borders every single day. It actually, just like Daniel and his friends, there is an opportunity as well as a challenge. Word and witness. A successful church, in God's eyes, is one that is sharing the good news of His Son, Jesus Christ. Because all this is rushing towards the culmination of history as we know it where Jesus Christ will return. Let's pray.